Good morning. Uh, we have a good number of families uh, gone this morning to the, the fall uh, retreat at Latimer. And uh, I just wanted you to know that's going really well. They, uh, they're having a wonderful time there. There's a lot of fellowship and worship uh, taking place. And, uh, and it's just one of the many good things that are going on at this church that are uh, exciting to see happen and that, that I'm glad to be a part of and uh, that, uh, that you should know about and be, be happy is taking place also. Um, we have been, for quite a while now, uh, going through the story of God uh, throughout Scripture, starting with Adam and Eve, and we've gone up through the history of Israel, and well, right now we're about to uh, begin uh, talking about the, the culmination or the, the climax of that story here this morning. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Uh, Matthew 1 begins with a genealogy, and... I don't know how many of you guys are like, uh, uh, you know, big fans of great literature, but uh, genealogies are not generally high on the list of the most riveting and exciting things to read. Uh, if you're starting a, a book or a sermon or something like that, one of the first things they tell you to do is try to capture people's attention. You want to try to, you know, get the audience hooked so that they want to hear what you have to say. And the way Matthew decides to do that with the most exciting thing he could think of is a lengthy list of names and begats. You know, this person begat, this person begat, this person begat, this person. And, uh, and you read through that and you think, okay, um, to you and I, that, that's kind of the type of thing where your eyes kind of glaze over and you start kind of skipping from the line, like when is this list going to be over? Um, but Matthew does start with this. And he starts with this intentionally. And I think it's really important for us to recognize and to know that he starts with this. In fact, based on the placement of, of our New Testament books, you know, the order that they're in, this is our introduction to the New Testament itself, this lengthy list of names. Why in the world would Matthew start that way when he could have started with something significantly more exciting? You know, if you're just reading for, for, uh, for enjoyment, like there are a lot of incredible things that take place in the life of Jesus. Why didn't he start with one of those things? And I think there's a really important reason why. Um, and I think it has to do with our whole sermon series that we've been going through, talking about these call stories and people who were given missions and people who've been sent and people who've had to answer God's call. And I think it has to do with this. Jesus is being introduced to us, not as the beginning of a new and wonderful story, but as the climax of a very ancient story, a story that has long been in progress, long before the incarnation, a story that Jesus is going to play a pivotal role in, but Jesus is not the beginning of this story. This story has been going on for a long time, and a genealogy is one of the most succinct and, uh, and uh, clear ways that you could summarize a massive story in a relatively short period of time. Because every one of the names that's mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, like every one of those names, they're a person. They are a story. They're a, a, they're a, a, a link in this chain that has led from the beginning of the call of Abraham all the way to Jesus the Messiah. They've played a role in bringing about this story to where it is now, to where you and I can read it. And if you were to start reading Matthew... Without that story in your mind, none of these names are going to mean anything to you. And because of that, this story is largely going to be a lot less meaningful to you. Think about the very first verse of the Gospel of Matthew. Let's just read it uh, quickly. The first verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. 
the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Imagine you've never heard of an Old Testament before. You've never read any of it. You don't know any names, any of it. That verse is going to make just about zero sense to you. Um, Want to know something that's really fascinating about it? My Bible, the very first part of it says, the record of the genealogy. The record of the genealogy. You know what the word uh, record is in Greek? It's the word biblos. We get the word Bible from it. Uh, but it's a word that means book. The book of the genealogy. You know what the word genealogy is in Greek right there? It's the word Genesis. It's the second book of, uh, or sorry, it's the first book of your Old Testament, uh, the book of Genesis. Like, that, that's actually the first line of Matthew is the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. It's a very literal translation of that very first. In fact, that phrase, the, the Biblos of the Genesis, that comes from the book of Genesis. That's a repeated phrase. Uh, like Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4 says, these are the records of the genealogies of uh, the heavens and earth in the day the Lord God created them. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 5, you can go through, and Genesis is going to record a number of genealogies, and they're going to contain this phrase, the book of Genesis. And that's where the, the Septuagint Genesis, that's where it gets its name from. That's why we call it Genesis, because it's a reoccurring phrase throughout that book. And Matthew picks up on it, and he wants you to know you're about to have a book of Genesis. <laughs> you're about to read a new book of beginnings. Only this isn't the, the book of Genesis way back there. This is the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. And so he's introducing you to something that in your mind should take you backwards, but also was going to give you hope to look forwards, all the way in the very first phrase of the book. Uh, and so Matthew is intentional in drawing you back to the original story and how it has led to this story. We're about to get the book of Genesis of Jesus now. And you know who Jesus is? The Messiah. Well, if you've never read your Old Testament, the Messiah, that word's not going to mean much to you. Uh, the word Messiah actually is a really important word, though. It, it is, encapsulates the, the hopes and the longings of Israel for the kingdom of God and for the, the anointed one who will come and lead them out of sin and oppression and give them a brighter and better future. That's something they're longing for and hoping for. Someone who can maybe uh, relieve them from the stress of, of the oppression of the Roman Empire or those who have been, been holding them down. And he is the son of David. Well, David, that's a key character in the Old Testament. First off, son of David is an important messianic title. That, that, that's a phrase that's used to describe that Messiah. But it goes back to an actual person, the, the, the first king of the tribe of Judah over the United Nation of Israel. He was a valiant military leader. He was someone who gave them great success in the land. He was someone who exp expanded their borders. He was someone who um, is revered and thought of as a great king in ancient Israel. And then you read, son of Abraham. And that's the final phrase of Matthew 1.1. And that's going to take you back to the original call of Israel. Like, like, these people who are mentioned, they are mentioned intentionally because their story is an essential part of understanding the mission and the, the purpose of Jesus. What was Jesus doing? Why did God come as a man to, to, to mankind? What is, the, what is that about? Well, it's about fulfilling the call and the mission of a much greater story that started a long time ago that's going to be reaching its climax in the book of Genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But by the way, um, 
along the way, we've actually spent some time looking at each of the people who, who are named in that verse. We've looked at the call of Abraham. We've looked at the call of, of, uh, of David. We looked at uh, the, the call of Adam and Eve at the very beginning of Genesis and, and, and a number of, of the people throughout that. And we've done that intentionally. We've been trying to look at different people at different periods in the history of, of Israel that played a role in bringing about a hope and expectation and desire for the coming Messiah that Jesus is going to actualize and realize and bring to fruition. And so as we begin uh, this morning, we're going to be in the genealogy. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about some passages outside of the genealogy, but I want you to look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 17. We just looked at the first verse that describes the genealogy. Matthew 1.17 is the summary passage at the end of it. And notice the key points that Matthew pulls out from this long list of names that he wants you to know and that he wants you to think about. When you think about Jesus and when you think about the key story leading up to him, these are some of the pivotal moments that he wants you to have in your mind as he begins telling you about who this Messiah is. Chapter 1 of verse 17 says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. So he actually, he structures the genealogy so that you get three sets of 14, right? And in the first one, you get from Abraham, which is the call of Abraham to found the, and father the people of God, right? All the way to David. David is going to be the first king of those people. Fourteen generations he lists in between them, from the founding to the kingship and the monarchy. And then the next 14 isn't quite such a wonderful upward trajectory, from the foundation to the monarchy. The next one is from, look at verse 17. And from David to the exile to Babylon. Fourteen generations. So that is from King David in the beginning of the monarchy until... They're destroyed and they lose the monarchy and they lose their sovereignty as a people and they lose a lot of their national hope. That's 14 generations. So you have a good, wonderful upward trajectory and then you kind of have a plummet uh, from King David to we've lost the kingdom and we've lost everything. And then it takes you, the last one, verse 17, and from the deportation or the exile to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. And notice he doesn't say to Jesus, he wants you to have that word Messiah, because Messiah is the one who gives the ultimate hope of the end, the true end of that exile. Uh, that's what Jesus is, is pictured as bringing here in the opening chapters. So you, you can read it, you think, well, the exile did end. I mean, you read about it, your Old Testament, it was 70 years, they went to Babylon, and then they came back home. And we talked about it last week with like Ezra and Nehemiah, that, that's returning home from Babylon. Yeah, kind of. Kind of it ended. But even while they were there in the promised land, read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and see who they have to get permission from to pretty much do anything. It's Persia. It's like they're home, but they're still not an independent people. They still don't uh, have like King David returned or, or some king in the line of David. In fact, they, they've returned home and they're still oppressed. And you keep looking at the history of Israel and eventually the Persians fall and the Greeks rise and they're oppressed by the Greeks. And, and there's some terrible things that happen in their history during the reign of Greek kings, uh, like Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who had a bunch of terrible uh, uh, laws that were passed that outlawed a lot of Jewish practices. There were wars, there were rebellions against them, like the Maccabean Revolt. Like You have a lot of terrible stuff. And then you have Rome who comes into power. And Rome oppresses them also. And it's like, 
one nation right after another, they've returned home, but they're strangers in their own land. They're, is, they're exiles still, because they're still dominated by a foreign power who still make laws for them that aren't their own laws and that aren't Torah. In fact, they, they don't have the authority to say, no, Torah is actually the law of the land, because Rome's making the laws of the land, or the Greeks, or the Persians, or the Babylonians, or, you know, like, they, they're, they aren't their own people. And so they come up with ways to still kind of obey Torah. They come up with ways to say, well, okay, even though we can't make our own national laws, Sabbath observance is something we can do, and no one will stop that. Um, we're still going to eat our food diets. We're still going to circumcise our children. And they come up with these, these parts of the law that they heavilized very, very centrally uh, so that these become the boundary markers that define them as a people, even though they're in exile, even though they're still dominated by a foreign power. But all the time they're hoping for and longing for, who's going to free us from this exile? from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Matthew is starting his gospel, having summarized a story from Abraham to David, from David to exile, from exile to the Messiah, to let you know that hope has arrived, and there's something here now that can give you a better future. Something here now that can give you hope. As we have uh, gone through and we've talked about uh, the call of, of all these people, you know, Jesus had a monumental call. When you look at what Jesus was called to do, Jesus was called to fulfill the hopes and the dreams of an entire nation of people. Jesus was called to fulfill the law of those people, which they often failed to do. Jesus was called to bring about forgiveness and blessing and new life over the powers of darkness and sin that have enslaved and kept these people captive. And not just for these people, but then to open the door of that salvation and freedom to people of the whole world. It, Jesus comes with a worldwide mission, and it was not an easy call. In fact, it's a call that would lead to ridicule, to suffering, and to death. It's a call that would cost him everything. And, and one thing that we've noticed with so many of these call stories throughout the Old Testament is there were people, when they were given these calls, it ruined the, the nice, easy life they had planned for themselves. Uh, it, it, it changed everything for them. And a lot of times they would meet that call with a rebuttal. You know, they would say, well, no, no, choose somebody else, or I'm not a good enough speaker, or it's like, I'm unworthy. Like, there were always these rebuttals. And even when you look at Jesus, the very incarnation of God himself, you see that this call made his life hard. You see that even Jesus has his rebuttal in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times he asks God to remove this from him. Yet through it all, Jesus provides an example of faithfulness through the most challenging call that we could have. Jesus ends those prayers by saying, but not my will, yours be done. And I think that's the key idea when God calls. Um, if the call always is right in keeping with your own will, that might be a clue that the call is not coming from God. Uh, if the call is not in keeping with Scripture, well, that's a big, huge alarm sounding that the call is not coming from God. Uh, if the call is something that uh, is harmful to the community of faith, or is the call is something that uh, will, will end up um, putting perhaps your own personal happiness over the well-being of other people, those are alarms uh, that, that the call is not from God. With Jesus... His call was from God. It was not easy, but he said, your will, not mine, 
be done. So we look through this call story, and uh, what we're going to do in this lesson is try to demonstrate how, briefly, uh, the call of Jesus fulfills the call that we see repeatedly throughout the history of Israel. So you go to like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were placed in this beautiful garden. They were called to care for and tend to this garden. They were called not just to stay there in the garden forever, but to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. It's like they had a mission for the whole earth. And instead of fulfilling that mission, they ended up bringing sin into this world. One of the ways that Jesus is pictured throughout the New Testament, and if you read Luke's genealogy, Luke doesn't just, so Matthew and, and Luke both have a genealogy of Jesus. Uh, Matthew's goes from Abraham to David to exile to Jesus. Those are like your four key markers. Luke starts with Jesus and goes backwards. And he goes backwards through the, the exile. He doesn't make a, as specific a note of it, but he goes through the exile. He goes back to David. Then he goes back to Abraham, but then he keeps on going. And he goes all the way back to Adam. And then even beyond that, he says, uh, Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And he takes the genealogy from Jesus all the way back to God himself uh, as the foundation point of it, which I think is, is a intentional demonstration of Jesus being son of God, Jesus also being son of, of Adam, you know, son of Adam. Which, by the way, the son of Adam, uh, the Hebrew word for man or mankind in the Old Testament is Adam. And so when, when you're reading like Daniel 7 and Jesus is called the son of man, son of Adam is, is what that is. That, that's what that is in, in Hebrew. It's like Jesus is, is the son of Adam. But where Adam became the one who was the first of this world and he brought sin and death into the world, Jesus is pictured as a new Adam. He's a son of Adam, but he's not the Adam who brings sin and death into the world. He's the Adam of a new way of life, of a new world. When we think about our ultimate hope as Christians, and we think about the resurrection, and we think about life eternal with God, did you know there's already been an Adam? There's already been a first one of that new life. He's already lived, and he was already uh, come to his new life through the resurrection. Like, the resurrection already started, and we already have our new Adam, and you can read about him. And he's not the Adam who ate from the tree and brought sin and death into the world. He's the Adam who, through the death and resurrection, brought righteousness and forgiveness and, and grace into this world. So, like, Romans chapter 5 pictures Adam as the one who brought sin and curse into the world, but thanks be to God, because Jesus has come along as a new Adam who is more powerful than this curse of sin and death to bring about righteousness into the world. And when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul again uses that Adam, new Adam imagery to describe the first Adam who brought death into the world and the second Adam who through the resurrection brings eternal life into the world. So the call of Adam that was destroyed through sin is rectified and redeemed through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus himself. Which is why, like, the book of Revelation is going to end with the image of the Lamb, and he's there, and there's no need for a temple, because you don't have to go to a building to find God, because God is everywhere. And there's no need for a sun, because you don't, you, you don't, uh, you have the very presence of God illuminating the new heavens and the new earth. And when you see that, the image that's there is the image of Eden. There's trees of life there. They give life everlasting. You have Eden restored in beautiful ways. Why? It's because Jesus accepted, fulfilled, and uh, accomplished the call of God 
through his life and through his death and through his resurrection. Adam's mission, which he failed, was picked up and redeemed and accomplished in Jesus. Um, Abraham. If you remember Abraham himself, uh, he was originally given this call that he was supposed to leave his home and go to the promised land and God would show it to him. But he was told that in so doing, he would become a blessing. In his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Like Abraham's call was not just to start a new nation. It was to start a nation through which the whole world would be redeemed and restored and blessed again. So the story leading up to Adam or to, to Abraham is the Tower of Babel story where the people are all gathered together. That's Genesis 11, and they build this tower, and then they're scattered, and they bring their sin and wickedness with them. Their languages are confused, and you have like these pockets of sinful, rebellious people throughout the world that eventually become the nations. And, and, the, and, and, and the question is, is God like in the flood? Is he going to wipe out the nations? Is he going to give up on the nations? Is he going to forget about and condemn the nations? No, God's ultimate plan is to redeem and to forgive and to bless the nations and to call them back into his family. And the way that he goes about that plan is the next chapter, Genesis 12. He calls Abraham and he says, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so Abraham's family is meant to be this blessing to the nations. But, but if you read the story, that's not actually what it looks like very much. In fact, they're wanting a Messiah who's going to destroy and kill all the nations. Uh, they're wanting a Messiah who's going to destroy and overthrow Rome and establish their own kingdom again. And they became a very self-focused kingdom. And the Messiah comes along. And if you read like the writings of Paul, when he considers his mission in this world as the apostle to the Gentiles, he goes back to that original call of Abraham. And he says that now through the Messiah, the time has come to be a blessing to all the nations. So he goes from city to city, from nation to nation throughout the, that's what the missionary journeys are. They are an embodied interpretation of Genesis 12, which says be a blessing to all the nations. He's going to go do that. And he's going to show you how to do it through the Messiah. And so through the church and through our mission, we are fulfilling and continuing the mission of Jesus to be that blessing to the world. So like, if you look at if you look at Jesus fulfilling the call of Adam and Eve, you see this mission of Jesus that is, that is our hope. He's bringing about our hope for something better. When you look at Jesus fulfilling the call of Abraham, you're getting a glimpse of what our mission is, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, to make disciples of every nation. That's, that's the language of, of Abraham's call. You know, to, to be a blessing to every nation, go make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's like Jesus is calling us to be a part of that story that goes all the way back to Abraham, that goes all the way back to Adam, that Jesus himself is accomplishing. Look at Moses. We talked about his call. Moses' call was to go to Egypt and bring about freedom from slavery. And it, you can read Matthew. Matthew not only mentions Abraham and all these people, but the way the story is told at the beginning of Matthew, it's, it's a retelling of the Exodus story of the life of Moses in the person of Jesus. So that Moses, if you remember, there was a ruthless king, uh, Pharaoh, 
who was afraid he would lose his kingdom. So he issued that horrible decree for the, the, the execution of the children of, of Israel, uh, who, who the, the children of the Hebrews who were living among them. Uh, and, and then he started throwing them in the Nile River, and you have all of this stuff happen. And Moses is put in a basket, and he ends up uh, being raised up in Egypt in Pharaoh's household itself until he eventually escapes and goes to redeem his people. If you read the first chapters of Matthew, you're going to see that story retold in Jesus himself. Only now, Pharaoh is Herod. And Herod, for fear that the king of Jews is going to come and, and take away his kingdom, he ends up issuing this terrible decree for Bethlehem that all of the children of Bethlehem, two and under, were to be killed. And Jesus and his family, they flee by escaping down to Egypt until the death of Herod. And then they come back, and Jesus comes back to redeem his family. Jesus, like Moses, uh, he ends up going up on a mountain and teaching the people. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. But like you read through and Jesus is reliving and reacting, reenacting the story of Moses. Why? Well, if you read the story of Moses, um, you see a lot of things happen. You see the story of Passover, which is the, what Jesus uses for his death and resurrection. What is Passover about? Go back to, to Moses, and the Passover is about the overthrow of the powers that held Israel as slaves. And Jesus is enacting his own exodus, his own Passover, where he is overthrowing the powers that hold us as slaves. The powers of sin, the powers of death that have so long held us captive. Jesus, through his life-giving blood on the cross and through his resurrection, he is freeing us from those powers to give us hope of a better future. Unlike Moses, though, who went to the wilderness and who died without entering into the promised land, Jesus goes to the wilderness for 40 days of temptation, and he emerges victorious and successful out of the promised land to lead God's people. It's like Jesus is like Moses, but he's a new and better Moses. And just like the story of the Exodus gives freedom from slavery, Jesus gives us an eternal freedom. You look at the story of Jesus and his life, he fulfills Passover. He fulfills the Exodus, and he gives ultimate freedom and hope into the promised land. You look at David. Remember, David's mentioned right here in this genealogy. Abraham to David. Um, David was a king who, kind of a mixed bag of a king. Like, he's revered as being this great king, but you read his life, and uh, there's some definite highs, but there's some definite lows. And one of the things that you'll see is uh, later on in Matthew, in chapter 22, Jesus is going to compare the Messiah to David himself. And he's going to do so using Psalm 110. And we talked about it in our Mark class a little bit this morning. But even David refers to the Messiah as his Lord to show that Jesus is coming not just as a son of David, but actually as someone who's greater even than David, a greater king. And, and when you look at the kingdom of David, one of the things that defined it was bloodshed. David killed Goliath. We talked about that story earlier in this series. David is the one who the people sang about. That, you know, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. David, for a bride uh, price for, for Saul's daughter, killed a whole bunch of uh, Philistines and then brought back a, kind of a trophy from them and, and set it at the feet of King Saul. Like You can read through the story of David, and you can see that he's someone who was a great king, but he became a king largely through his ability to kill his enemies. Jesus becomes the greatest king, not because he killed his enemies, but because out of steadfast, uncompromising love, he died even for his enemies. 
That's the message that changes the world. Anyone can kill their enemies. Nations have been doing that for years. Like, that's, that's what they do. Uh, Jesus demonstrates a new and a different way that has endured. Um, we haven't always modeled it very well. But Jesus is calling us to be a new kind of people who live a new kind of life with hope that even if you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And even if they take everything from you, including your life, because of his victory over death, life cannot be stripped from you. You win. You keep with the story, and eventually after the kingdom of David, the kingdom does fall, and the people go off into exile. We looked at Daniel. Daniel is someone who lived a life in exile. Daniel is someone who lived a life in Babylon. He was, uh, he was faithful to the God of Israel, but living in a foreign land, and there was a lot of... Uh, struggle as to how exactly you go about uh, living as a foreigner in a new land when your citizenship is with Israel. But then like Babylon fell and Persia came and he had to, he, like, he lived as a citizen, of Israel, a citizen of Israel, of Babylon, and of Persia throughout the book of Daniel. But the thing that is steadfastly amazing about Daniel is you don't see his loyalties change with each rising and falling empire, because his loyalty is always to the God of Israel, first and foremost. And when you look at exile, I don't think you get a better glimpse of exile than Jesus himself in the incarnation. If you're talking about living away from your homeland amidst a, a foreign people, that's exactly what the incarnation is, to an extent no one ever has before, leaving heaven itself to live as a man, to live among us. And Jesus provides for us the perfect climactic example of what living as an exile is, so that we as exiles can follow in that example. It's like when Paul in Philippians uh, chapter 3 describes us as citizens of heaven, like we're people whose citizenship is there with God himself, and yet we live on this earth, whether as Americans or as uh, Canadians or you know, throughout the world, Christians throughout the world, wherever their earthly citizenship that's not their ultimate defining citizenship. That is with God himself. And that's where our ultimate and true eternal allegiance lies. And kingdoms will rise and kingdoms will fall and parties will gain power and parties will lose power and votes will mean something and votes might not mean. Like you can look throughout world history and you can see that across the globe there's different political structures, there's different ideologies, there's different idolatries. There's all of these different things that rise and fall. And what we're called to do is give our ultimate allegiance and commitment not to a temporal power that will rise and fall, but to the ultimate power behind it all, to God himself. And Daniel provides that glimpse, and Jesus provides that glimpse. Remember Jesus taken up on that mountain in Matthew chapter 4 by Satan and shown all the kingdoms of the earth and said he could rule them all. Why doesn't Jesus take him up on that? You know, he wants to be king, right? Because Jesus has a different kind of kingdom in mind, a very real kingdom, not a fake kingdom, not just some kind of spiritual kingdom that doesn't have any real practical meaning on this earth, but a legitimate real kingdom, but founded not on hatred or destruction of enemies, founded on the love of enemies, the love of neighbor, and ultimately and truly the love of God. We looked at Nehemiah last week, and we looked at how Nehemiah, even after the people returned home from exile, it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. It's like they returned home, but you never saw an actual transformation of the heart of the people. In Nehemiah, the book ends with the temple's rebuilt, the walls are rebuilt, Torah's been read, 
people have been supposed to enter into covenants, and he just walks through, and he sees people breaking Sabbath and not really caring. He sees people uh, intermarrying in, in ways that they're not supposed to, bringing in idolatry and things. Like, he looks, and he sees constant rejection of what God has called them to be, and he's at his wit's end, and he punches and curses and pulls hair, and then calls out to God to remember him for good, and then the book ends, and it's like, is something better going to come? <laughs> and uh, when you begin Matthew with this genealogy, you realize, yes, something better has come. Something that fills what was lacking. Something that will bring about the ultimate acceptance of the call that fulfills all other calls. It's like every mission that we've read about has its culmination in the mission of Jesus himself. And Jesus is the one who provides us a mission. Jesus is the one who provides us hope. He's the one who provides us a home. He's the one who provides us a freedom from the powers that have held us enslaved in a true exodus. The one who gives us a perfect king and the true kingdom of God where God's will is done on earth as in heaven through discipleship and following Jesus. He provides an example of how to live in this world. He provides the forgiveness of sins that frees us from the slavery of sin and allows us to live as who God created us to be. That's the call of Jesus, and that's the story, the call, the mission that we're invited into, to live that way and to invite others into it also. And that's a call that is for every single person here and throughout the world, regardless of your gifts, regardless of your age, regardless of your, uh, of your social status or wealth or nationality, this is a universal call to enter into this mission of God, to enter into this story of God, and to be a part of it. If the genealogy continued, if the story continued, and lists of names were, were, were continued to be recorded and, and written, um, will you be a part of the story of God? Will you be someone who takes up the mantle and says, I'm going to enter into it and faithfully live it out? Uh, that's the call that Jesus lays at our feet, and it's our job to accept it or reject it. You actually have an opportunity right now. You want a life of faithfulness to Christ, of hope of something better, of forgiveness of sins, of a true exodus out of the powers of sin and darkness, and a home eternal through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can have that opportunity right now this morning to name Jesus as Lord of your life, have your sins washed away in baptism and live for him from this point forward. If you have that need, you can talk to one of our elders in the library in the back, or you can come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.